for a certain reason to turn to the person next to you and say a really strong welcome to them in the most warm and wonderful South Carolina way that you, that you can. Okay, so go ahead and do it. You can go ahead now and do it. <laughs> say it like... <laughs> very good, very good. Okay, good job. Well, how did that make you feel? Uncomfortable. <laughs> it didn't make you feel welcome, huh? It didn't make you feel, that's what I'm shooting for. Okay, how many of you have moved in the last four or five years? Okay, how about the last 10 years? Let me throw that out there, okay. Did your neighbors um, bring you cookies or a meal or something when you, when you moved in? Say yes or no, you can say it out loud. Yes? Okay. <laughs> well, for those of you that said yes, how did that make you feel? Great. How about welcome? That's what I'm looking for. Welcome. That's what we're, we're looking for today. Um, well, there were some situations and issues within the Roman church where believers were not feeling or being so welcomed by other believers. In fact, there was some judging going on of others taking place over things like eating and drinking and holy days. Uh, Paul calls these disputable matters, matters that God has not specifically spoken about in his, or forbidden in his word. And Paul addresses these things in chapter 14, a little bit in 15 too, and shows us how believers can respond in love um, to issues or situations which in principle may not be so different from issues or situations that we face today. And there's a word that Paul uses three times in chapter 14 and 15, and it's actually in our very first verse today, but I've kind of fallen in love with it, and it's called proslambano, uh, which I know you'll never remember, but it's, it's like something, I, w I think of it as like something you might order off a, a menu at Carrabba's or an Italian restaurant, you know. I'd like some proslambano with a side salad, please. So that's how, how I, I kind of remember it. But the word is translated welcome, accept, receive. And here are a few descriptions of it and how the New Testament uses it. And I got this off of a precept study. To take or receive into one's home with kindness, accepted warmly. To take as one's companion or with tenderness. To receive or grant one access to one's heart. I like that one especially. To take by the hand in order to lead aside. And it's used in Romans um, 15, 7. This keeps falling down on me. Uh, for what Jesus has done for you. He sa it says, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Um, and this could really be our theme verse for today, even though we're going to look at it next week. So regardless of how your neighbors have welcomed you, Jesus himself has accepted you warmly, welcomed you, brought you into his home with kindness and tenderness, granted you access to his heart, taken you by his hand to lead you aside. And Paul, in our study this morning, is asking us to do the same for other believers who can be so very different from us uh, in regards to views on disputable matters. So let's look at the outline for today. Being accepting of each other. And then we have freedom in disputable matters and freedom to sacrifice for others. And I put those up here too. So if you, if you need to write them down, they're up on this, this board here too. Okay, so let's start off with prayer. Father, 
As Rose said, you are so full of grace. Your grace is so much more than we can imagine, Father. And we just pray before we open your word today that your Holy Spirit will reveal you to us, Lord. That uh, you will show us how to be more like Christ in all of our interactions with other believers and show us how to, uh, once again, be a, li a living sacrifice for your glory. So we just ask all these things in your name. Amen. Um, well, disputable matters are just things that are not expressly forbidden in God's word. They're, they're, the, they're the issue. Yeah, yeah. So, And we'll go into them a little bit more in a moment here, too. So, um, All right. Well, let's, let's open up our first verse. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. So the underlying word there, again, is proslambano. Uh, so Paul tells the Romans to welcome, to accept, to receive a person um, whose faith is weak. And the person Paul is speaking of is not weak in regards to their faith in Jesus. That is genuine. They're a part of the family of believers, um, and, and they believe the truth. Uh, but they don't give themselves freedom to do certain things uh, that are not sp specifically, again, forbidden in Scripture. Uh, they, have, they may have a legalistic spirit and feel that they must keep God's favor through rules and regulations, uh, or they may just have a sensitive conscience about things. They don't understand the full implications of grace, what Christ has done for us and what that means. So these opinions or disputable matters, again, are things, like we said, that Scripture doesn't prohibit. And I think we all know what some of these disputable matters are, uh, in the church today, and, and that believers are faced with on a daily basis. So I'm not going to bring up some specifically um, this morning, um, especially since I think there's a question in the workbook about it, so, so your leader, leaders will do that. But I wonder if the Holy Spirit brought some items to your mind this week as you were studying. Um, okay, there we go. <laughs> Um, but I do love the word of caution that Timothy um, Keller uses about these disputable matters. And he says this, We must guard against thinking that almost every area is a disputable matter of conscience. Right? I mean, remember Paul said, don't use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. I mean, we can pretty much justify anything if we wanted to. Um, remember, Satan said, did God really say, you know, so we, we have to be careful about that. But he says, and against the view that hardly any area is a disputable matter of conscience. And I liken this to maybe a person who um, thinks God's word has spoken on every single issue and I know what it says, right? <laughs> so it's kind of that type of thinking. But Paul's desire is that the strong Roman believers are to accept these, the, weak, the weak believers. And I'm just going to call them weak believers from here on out. But we know that doesn't mean they're weak in their belief in Jesus. So he wants them to welcome them, to accept them into fellowship. And we saw how loving that word meant. Um, they are to take them into their hearts, but not for the purpose of setting them straight um, or fixing them, not to start arguments about how, how right you know, we are or how wrong they are. So they are, um, they are to bring them in, as some translations say here, oops, not to quarrel over opinions, without passing judgment on his opinions, don't argue about doubtful issues, not to dispute over doubtful things. So they're just to receive them to love them, just as Christ has loved us. Verse 2, 
long time to get to verse 2, huh? <laughs> uh, one man's faith allows him to eat everything, but another man whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. So here's some further explanation for us. The one whose faith is weak is the one who only eats vegetables. You know, and I think you might be weak if you only ate vegetables, but um, mind you, in this context, it is only in regards to spiritual matters, right? So that's why they're eating the vegetables. So what was going on? Well, most likely, it was one of two things, although some, um, some, some commentaries throw in a third about the potential of asceticism, and I wasn't even going to bring that up because I thought, oh, I've never heard that before. But um, then I was doing devotions with my kids on Colossians 2, and there it was. I, hadn't, I had never heard of that before. But anyways, the first thing that most believe um, is that some Jewish believers were still adhering to the Jewish dietary laws, where things had to be kosher, which means fit or proper. And, um, you know, in regards to like the types of meat and the preparation of it, um, so we know from Leviticus 11 that there were clean animals and that there were unclean animals. Um, and then various laws on the preparation of food. A young goat couldn't be cooked in its mother's milk. The animals had to be killed in a certain way, and they couldn't, the Jews couldn't eat blood. So the Jews, not knowing the source of the meat, um, not knowing how the meat was prepared, um, would eat only vegetables. Uh, the reason some scholars feel that this is the situation is because of verse 14 and what we're going to read today uh, in our passage. Paul says, um, I'm persuaded that nothing is unclean. So he uses that word unclean. And also because the word weak here, um, I guess, is the same word, or I'm told is the same word used for kosher in the, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So it's the Septuagint. Um, the second scenario is that, that some believe is that because much of the meat that was sold in the marketplace at that time was from animals that had been sacrificed to the Roman so-called gods in the pagan temples. And it would bother the conscience of some of the Christians to eat that meat since it had been part of you know, a, a pagan ceremony or a pagan festival. And it may also bother the conscience of some of the Gentiles who maybe had left a life of idolatry. So, yet some believers didn't have any qualms about eating the meat at all. Uh, and some scholars, again, on the other side, feel this might be the situation because Paul spoke about this in 1 Corinthians, which I know that Mr. Keller had you look up as well, um, but I'm going to look at only two of the verses here. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and there is no God but one. But not everyone knows this. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol, and since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. So Paul says, you know, an idol is nothing. Paul would have eaten the meat unless it was, would have offended someone. Um, he also says, eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Okay, so let's go back to our main passage here. The man who eats everything must not look down on him who does not, and the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does, for God has accepted him. God has proslambanoed him, <laughs> that's what that says there. So um, the weak are on the same standing as the strong, right? Both have been accepted. Um, but it was the, 
the vegetarians against the beef eaters here. So that's what was taking place. Paul says, don't judge each other. God has accepted both into his kingdom. Um, One pastor wrote this. The strict Christian found it easy to judge his brother, writing him off as an unspiritual meat eater compromiser. The free Christian found it easy to show contempt against his brother, regarding him as an uptight, legalistic goody-good. So there was this serious judging going on. And that type of stuff happens today, um, as we know, in churches over certain issues. The strong may feel that they're more advanced in Christ, you know, a little more free. So that's prideful, right? And then the weak might feel like they're a little bit more holy, a little bit more separated unto God because of their disciplines. But again, prideful, right? But when we remember that we all stand before God, I think I had it here, um, not on the basis of our righteousness, right? But, but based on what, what, on what Jesus Christ has done for us, uh, the righteousness that we've been given through him, how can we really judge each other? Uh, God has accepted us all. And if others are accepted by Jesus, but we don't accept them, what does that say about us? So, and Paul gives a reason for not judging in verse 4. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. And this word judge or crino is one of the words that's repeated throughout chapter 14. It's in verses 3, 4, 5, 10, 13, and 22. A couple of those are in a little bit different context. So I'm not going to go through these, but just to show you them. Um, But this is why many uh, Bible translations, different Bible translations, entitle this chapter, Don't Judge Others. I don't know if you've noticed that. It may even be in yours, or Do Not Judge. Um, But this verse reminds us that God is the master of all of us. And the person that we judge doesn't answer to you or I, but to God. He or she is God's servant. The Lord chose them, and they will be upheld by God, for he is determined to do so. Jesus Christ paid an incredible price for that person that we, that we are judging. So there's no condemnation for those who are in him. Remember that? And it's the same for you and me and all those who disagree with us on these dis- uh, dis- debatable matters. So Paul then moves on to the topic of holy days. One man considers one day more sacred than another. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. He who regards one day as special does so to the Lord. He who eats meat eats the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. So it was said at this time in Rome that many of the Jewish Christians um, still observed the Sabbath, so Saturday, um, as their holy day. And the Gentile Christians were observing the first day of the week in honor of Christ's Resurrection Day. And Paul asked them to consider one another and their freedom to do that. The focus needs to be on God, but they were focusing on foods and days rather than on Jesus. So Paul addresses this also in in, uh, Colossians 2.16. But in this case, there was major heresy going on in the church. He says, Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. 
So the important thing is that all of these celebrations for the Jews, whether it be Passover, first fruits, trumpets, all of them pointed to Jesus Christ. And now we have him, right? Uh, yet if someone wishes to celebrate these things, it's in their liberty in Christ to do so. So Paul says, don't, don't judge them. They are sincerely trying to please God in the things that they do, in the way that they worship God. So we're not to judge. Okay, let's go back to our verses. One man considers, oh, that's back to our verses. So why does Paul tell them to be fully convinced in his own mind? Um, it seems like that this would lead the believers to be even more stubborn about issues, right? <clears throat> Rather than being charitable to one another. Yet when Paul speaks of acceptance or welcoming of others, he does not mean to lose our convictions before God. To accept other people's ideas is right. Or to be wishy-washy, always teetering back and forth um, with our beliefs. He desires that we be strong in our beliefs, and we're going to see that in the last few um, verses in chapter 14. Everything that's not done from faith is sin, so we're going to learn about that. And Paul does give us some helpful direction, actually, in these two verses to determine where we stand on some debatable things so that we can make decisions for ourselves and be strong in our decisions. The first question to ask is this. It's down at the bottom there. Am I fully convinced in my own mind? So why is it important that we be convinced? Again, because if, if we practice things that we feel are questionable, we can harm ourselves. We can sin against our own conscience. And again, that's at the end of the chapter. One, one scholar said, in order to be convinced in our mind, we need to thoroughly search the scriptures and settle certain matters in our hearts. And I would add prayer, a prayer to that too. But um, the second one is, can I do this to the Lord? And the ESV here says, in honor of the Lord. So are we glorifying God in the things that we approve of for ourselves? Um, or are we simply serving ourselves in what we do? Uh, would we feel comfortable with what we're doing um, if, if Jesus was right there with us? And I know that's kind of a blanket statement, and really God is always there with us, but sometimes we forget. You know, so that is something to consider. And then the third one, can I give thanks to God in what I'm doing? Are you thankful to Jesus for what you practice or approve of? God, I lift this up to you and I give you thanks for it. Um, can you say about the thing, the practice, the observance, thank you, God, for this? So verse 7. For none of us lives to himself alone, and none of us dies to himself alone. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life, so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. So since we belong to Jesus, our very, our very breath belongs to him, and we live to please him in all we do. Dead or alive, we are his. Um, death is really eternal life for us, so... Um, but we are accountable to him in everything, and so are other believers. He died and rose again to make us his possession. Um, he is the Lord, as, it, as we see here. We remind ourselves, and all things are for his glory. So, verse 10. You then, why do you judge your brother? Or why do you look down on your brother? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. So if, as we just said, if every believer lives to the Lord personally, we are only responsible for ourselves before him, not for the lives of others. 
Paul says, why are you critical or condemning? Why do you despise your brother? Don't you realize that God is the judge of both of you? Our judgments of others are flawed, um, but there's a day when the real judge will settle things, and he will evaluate our brother and sister in Christ, as we're going to see in a moment, but more importantly to ourselves, he's going to be evaluating us as well. So, and the judgment seat spoken of here is not the white throne judgment. This is this is the place um, where our works are going to be tested. It's the Bema seat. And it's named for the place where judges stood um, to judge the athletic games, a platform. And the winner of the game would have, you know, that laurel wreath placed on their heads. Um, so it's a reward seat. It, it portrays a time of rewards or lots of rewards. And it will be between us and God. And it's not for our sins because Jesus is already taking care of our sins. He's died for them. Um, but it's what did, what did we do with our lives or the gifts that he gave to us? You know, what, what did we do while in the body of Christ? So, and it's mentioned here also in 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done in the body, whether good or bad. <clears throat> so at this judgment seat, we're not going to be able to to talk about what our neighbor has done or someone else in the church has done. So why do we sometimes focus on that now? What will really matter in the end? This should spur us on to be more loving and encouraging people to other believers who aren't exactly like us. Verse 11 and 12. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will, will acknowledge God. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. And Paul, once again, is quoting the Old Testament. This time it's Isaiah um, 45 and 49. One scholar wrote, This sure word of, word of prophecy will afflict the comfortable, but comfort the afflicted. Um, so we're stewards of all that God has given to us, and we will need it and to account for what he's given us. So the principle for this section is this. In disputable matters, believers are called to non-judgmental acceptance of each other. In disputable matters, believers are called to non-judgmental acceptance of each other. Now, this is not acceptance of their views, right? But acceptance of each other. Okay, well, I read this quote by Pastor, and it said, A preacher friend of mine wrote these words on Facebook. Just read in my devotions today, One man's faith allows him to eat everything, but another man whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. I think it was God's way of sending me to McDonald's for a sausage and egg McMuffin. <laughs> Amen. Freedom in Christ, you know, freedom from the Jewish dietary laws is such a joy. <laughs> I have to admit about that. Um, can you imagine what not eating pork would do to the state of South Carolina? <laughs> and poor Chef Bob, he would be weeping in the closet. But, um, but if we're honest before God, we have judged others before on disputable matters. Um, I judged my husband as a pagan when he bought a Keurig coffee maker. <laughs> you know, I said he was going over to the dark side. But you know, now I drink out of that Keurig, so what does that say about me? But God's love and his acceptance of believers in Jesus Christ is so much bigger, I think, than we can imagine. And I wonder if that's why Paul mentions in Ephesians that he prays for them that they'll, under, they'll be able to grasp how wide and long and high and deep 
is the love of Christ. If we could really understand, I think, the, the heart of God in this chapter, we might find some real spiritual growth occurring in our lives. So I wonder if you, after your time of study this week in prayer, if you found yourself more in the strong category or more in the weak category or maybe even on different issues on, on either side. I mean, I know I did, but, um, but here are some questions to consider. To the strong, is there someone you judge or even avoid because they have some rules or rigid opinions that you don't agree with? How will you follow after Christ who welcomed you into his family with all of your opinions and your ways that needed to be smoothed out by his word? To those who may be weak, what might you be wrong about that you judge others for doing? Will you spend time in prayer and the study of God's word to determine the truth about your convictions? If you find yourself wrong, you may still choose not to participate in the thing, but at least you won't judge those who do. To both the strong and the weak, could your judgment of others be hindering your walk with the Lord? How might judging others distract you from what God wants you to focus on? And how could your acceptance and welcoming of others display the love of Christ to a watching world? Okay, so this is our second portion here, freedom to sacrifice for others. Okay. Weak, yes, yeah. And that was, that was um, I got that from actually a BSF study. They said that in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that, yes? Oh, no, I thought you were, <laughs> that, um, that, 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 that's what that was, so. You know what? Well, well, in regards to weak, they're not saying that that person is is any less than the strong person. You know? Yes, it is the terms. Mm-hmm. This chapter is is not an easy chapter. We just have to take it really as Paul says it, and 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 exegete it as as it is written. So. Yes. Thank you for that question, and that is a really good question for your small group. But I will say, but I will say, I will say that 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 word "judge" is is taken differently in different passages, and many times in in the one that we're reading today, it has um, the idea of us being self-righteous over someone else, not like a condemning, like you are going to the very bad place for. <laughs> So you really, when, when we hear the word judge in scripture, we really need to exegete that word because it, it means different things in different places. So anyhow, where are we? Here we are. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in your brother's way. 
And this verse is actually really fascinating in the Greek because the word judge is used uh, twice and it basically says, stop judging, but judge this rather. Are we putting a stumbling block or occasion to fall in, in our brother's way? So judge yourself. Are you, you know, stop judging, but judge yourself. So um, the King James Version picks it up a little bit more, but, it, but in the Greek it, it loses, or the King James loses the original wordplay in the Greek. So we are to stop criticizing, stop thinking again that we are, we are better than one another, um, as some define judging here. Um, Paul says we're not to put a stumbling block or an obstacle in our brother's way. And let's see, what else do we got here? Verse 20, I'm going to bring some of these up too. Not cause someone else to stumble. We see it again, not cause your brother to fall. So how can we harm our brothers and sisters in this way? Well, we can do it by enticing them to sin against their own conscience when we encourage them to do things that we're free to do, but their conscience does not allow them to do. So, and we'll, we'll, we'll move on with this, um, expand this a little bit more, but let's, let's go back to that 1 Corinthians 8 passage. Um, Paul says, but food does not bring us near to God. We're no worse if we do not eat. We're no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom. So see, he tells the truth at the top, the very first verse. We know what he believes. We know what's right. But he says, be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone with a weak conscience sees you who have this knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't he be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. So your, your freedom, your, you know, what you have. When you sin against your brothers in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. So, um, so those with the weak conscience might try out the idol, you know, the, the idol temple food and then be distraught. Um, and another, as another example, the Roman Gentiles you know, in, could have served pork in their house church, we know, you know, from even next chapter that there are these house churches in Rome, and the Jews may have felt obligated to eat it, um, even if they know that they're free to eat it, but still their conscience might be tender about eating it. They eat it, and then they're full of guilt. So, but again, Paul says in verse 13, um, or Paul says in verse 13, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in your way. So, um, they're, they're to make up their mind not to try to harm their brother and sister in Christ. Look out for their spiritual good. Paul loved others so much that he said in 1 Corinthians 8, Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause him to fall. And that's an amazing statement. F.F. Bruce says that Paul was so completely emancipated from spiritual bondage, that he was not even in bondage to his emancipation. If that makes sense. <laughs> um, I had to kind of think that one through, but man, that's a wonderful statement. So in other words, he was so free in every area that he was even free from his freedom to forego it when he needed to. Um, but Timothy Keller also mentions another way that the strong can put obstacles in the way uh, of others. By flaunting our freedom, we can tempt them to have a harsh condemning spirit towards us to break fellowship with us or have a judgmental attitude. Okay, verse 14. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. 
So Paul says that by his divine knowledge, which we know he received personally from the Lord Jesus, he knows that no food is unclean. Um, he understands that Christ has fulfilled the law. Um, there's no more dietary restrictions on believers. And Jesus made it very, very clear in Mark 7 that, you know, it's not what comes into your body, but what comes out uh, that makes a person uh, unclean, what comes out of your mouth. So we find in Acts also the affirmation that all foods are clean. But even though Paul knows this and he believes it, he says here, if someone thinks it's wrong to eat certain things, then for them it is wrong to do that. And since love, again, is a guiding principle for us as believers, um, he says, if your brother is distressed because of what you eat, you're no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy your brother for whom Christ died. And he repeats this again more or less in 20, so we'll just cover it here. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it's wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. So just because we know that certain foods or, or days or practices don't commend us to God, love rules even over the spiritual knowledge of what is right and true that we have. So scripture says knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And Paul calls us, calls us to put love before knowledge here, and he shows us that because of love, there are times when we need to abstain doing things that would trouble other believers. But notice the word if. It says, if your brother is distressed. So if he's not distressed, then there's no issue. It's just if he's distressed. So to destroy here, um, oops, there we go. To destroy up there, let's look at verse 15. Does not mean to kill or to affect their eternal destiny. It's just that sin is destructive. And if our actions, again, cause a person to do what's sinful to them, we harm them. God is doing a work in their life, as we see here. Um, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Um, he knows the background of every person. And it takes some people a while to break free from legalism uh, or even just ways that they grew up believing. So don't destroy the work of God that he's doing in believers' lives or even the work of God in the church or through the church, uh, in the Romans case, for food. Um, but what might God say to us in our day and age you know, don't destroy the work of God for what? These are things that we need to think about. Do not allow what you consider good to be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And the Latin Vulgate says in this verse, don't allow our good to be spoken of as, as evil. So something Paul is talking about the gospel and Christianity in general. Um, but even if not, he's overall saying, be careful, be humble. This whole thing is not about eating and drinking. Um, it's about God and about his kingdom. Uh, the kingdom of God is the realm in which God rules. It's the present spiritual kingdom uh, which reigns in our hearts. It isn't a matter of holy foods or holy days. It's, it's a matter of the Holy Spirit. Um, and Christians who belong to this kingdom should represent to the dying world the glories of this right, righteous, peaceful, and joyful life in Christ. I left that other verse up there. Anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and approved by men. And some believe this means that when we serve Christ by pursuing righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, 
we deny ourselves in the ways that we've been discussing, uh, we are pleasing to God and approved by men because we are like our Lord Jesus, whose whole life was self-denying. Um, here's a quote by uh, Matthew Henry. Christ's whole life was a self-denying, self-displeasing life, and he is the most advanced Christian who is the most conformed to Christ. He bore the guilt of sin and the curse for it. We are only called to bear a little of the trouble of it. He bore the presumptuous sins of the wicked. We are called only to bear the failings of the weak. And should we not be humble, self-denying, and ready to consider one another who are members of one another? So Paul goes on to say, Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Edification, as we know, means build up in a moral or spiritual sense to establish, to strengthen, to encourage. So foremost, what will, what will lead to peace with my brother and sister and the encouragement of holiness in them? So what's best for their spiritual good? The last verse, uh, verses of chapter 14 are really summary verses restating what Paul has already mentioned. And we already looked at 20, so we won't go there, but but we'll look at these new details as they come up. It's better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So here we see that wine was added, and so this was an issue too in the early church, as it is today, but for different, different reasons back then, I think. But again, the encouragement to, to be considerate of others in what we do. Uh, verse 22, So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the man who does not condemn himself by what he approves. So it doesn't hurt sometimes to keep quiet about our convictions, about debatable things when the, when the situations call for it. And the situation in Rome called for it. Um, we don't always need to win the arguments or parade our spiritual wisdom or our freedom uh, in front of others. One scholar said often when we push people too hard, we harden their own stance and push them further away. Um, Gosh, I can't remember where I got that from. I can let you know. I can let you know. I just, I think I quote so many people that sometimes I just list them as scholars. But, um, so, yeah, I didn't reference that. I'm sorry. Um, anyways, I'm guilty of doing that. I don't know if you are, but pushing someone to so hard that maybe you've pushed them away. Um, so keeping our mouth closed may be a good plan of action to promote the peace in the mutual edification that we talked about just three verses ago. Now for the second part. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the man who does not condemn himself by what he approves. And when it says by what he approves, it, it, it generally means by what he does. So are we confident that what we do, the things we do, are pleasing to God? The word blessed here is actually translated happy. Are you happy in what you approve, or are you doing things that you're really not sure about? Um, when we have doubts about what we do, we lose our confidence and our joy and our peace before the Lord. We may also want to consider what rules we have placed upon ourselves that are not from God's word, but may be detrimental to us. Listen to Charles Spurgeon from the Wycliffe, <laughs> Claudia, Wycliffe Handbook. Um, I looked up how to pronounce that because I wasn't sure. And one, one, one uh, website said Wycliffe. Then I got in the other one, Wycliffe. You know, so Wycliffe. She told me it's Wycliffe. Um, so I have found 
in my own spiritual life that the more rules I lay down for myself, the more sins I commit. <laughs> the habit of regular and morning and evening prayer is one which is indispensable to a believer's life. But the prescribing of the length of prayer and the constrained remembrance of so many persons and subjects may gender into bondage and strangle prayer rather than assist it. In the same way, some rules that we may place on ourselves may be keeping us from the very life uh, in Christ that we, in the joy that we want. But verse, verse 23 says, But the man who has doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith, and everything that does not come from faith is sin. Paul's not saying, you know, again, that this person is going to the bad place or to suffer eternity apart from um, God. Although I do find it interesting in the Bible versions that I look up, it all says condemn, and one of them actually says damned, the King, the King James Version. But that's not what scholars tell us. This, this is here, and I, I, am, I am not a Greek scholar, so I'm going to go with what the scholars say. But Paul is saying that this person is afflicted in their conscience and guilty. And because they think it's wrong to eat the meat, but they're, they're eating it anyways, the unkosher food or the food from... No, no, it's the man who has doubts is condemned. The man who has doubts is damned. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> so, no, I'm sorry if that came out wrong. So, um, anyways, they, so they think it's wrong to eat it, but they're still eating it. So that's the point here. That person is truly miserable and, and in sin. So why would everything that doesn't come from faith be sin? Here's a few definitions from people a lot smarter than me. A person who does anything which he supposes God has forbidden or which he is not certain God has allowed clearly has a sinful disregard of the divine authority. So you think it's wrong to God, but, you, but, you, but you're doing it. F.F. Bruce, the implication appears to be that an action performed against the voice of conscience can never be right. A.W. Pink, if a man does not believe it is right to do some act and yet ventures to do it, he sins. Okay, so I needed help in, in thinking that through. But um, so prayerfully and with dependence on God's word and the Holy Spirit, we must decide what we can do in faith and, and, and what, we, what we can't. Now we come to... The summary, um, the summary, and again, we're not talking about things that God has clearly defined as sin. I just want to want to be clear about that. There are things that are sin, and there are essential doctrines of the faith. We're not we're not touching those here. So the, that's what not, this isn't about. So this is the summary section, summary verse for this section. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. So. You'll note here, Paul puts himself in with those that are strong. He could eat meat from the idol temple, and he could eat pork. He could have a bacon and ham sandwich and be thankful to God for it, you know. But out of, out of love, at times, he did not do so for the weak Christians. And he also did certain things to keep the peace because he cared about people and the gospel. Uh, once he took a Jewish oath, and he shaved his head, and he went to the temple all this as a free Christian. Um, he says in 1 Corinthians, Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those who not having the law, I became like one not having the law, 
though I'm not free from God's law, but I am under Christ's law. So as to win those not having the law, to the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I've become all things to all people so that by all possible means, I might save some. And I really wanted to go through that whole passage. Thank you for, for bearing with me on that. But Paul was a living sacrifice for God. He was not wishy-washy. He was strong. He was, he was very strong, so strong that he could become weak if he wanted to. All the responsibility really is on the shoulders of the strong because they're the ones that can sacrifice for, for, the, for the weak if, if need be. Um, they, know, they know the truth about certain things and they are more free. So um, more free in Christ to practice things. Let me, let me put it that way. So here's our principle for this section. And this one was very hard to put together. But in disputable matters, strong believers are called to practice humble, self-denying love when necessary. In disputable matters, strong believers are called to practice humble, self-denying love when necessary. And one pastor gave this story, which I, I thought was a good description of what Paul was trying to convey here. Um, and I shortened it up just a little bit and added some, some of my own thoughts. But it said, I liken this to crossing a swinging bridge over a mountain stream. There are people who can run across a bridge like that, even though it does not have any handrails. They are not alarmed by it. They can keep their balance. They are not concerned about the swaying of the bridge or the danger of falling into the torrent below. That's fine for them. But others cannot do that. They go out on a bridge like that, and they are very uncertain. They shake and tremble. They inch along or crawl across on their hands and knees. But they will make it if you will just give them time. If you let them set their own speed. After a few crossings, they begin to pick up courage, and eventually they're able to run right across. It's like that with these matters of conscience. Some people just cannot see themselves moving in a certain area that they have been brought up to think is wrong. They may have difficulty doing so. And in the case of the swinging bridge, it would be cruel for someone who had the freedom to cross boldly, take the arm of someone who was afraid, and drag them across, force them to run across, or to belittle them because they're afraid. These things may cause them to lose their balance and fall off the bridge and suffer injury. It's not loving to force people to move at your pace. Adjusting to their pace is what's called for here, to slowly walk alongside them. Jesus left the glory of heaven and walked al alongside us. He doesn't leave us nor forsake us. And the Holy Spirit is called our paraclete, our counselor, our comforter, our helper, our advocate, the one who comes alongside us. So in thinking about God's great love and patience for you and I, um, who might you have left in the middle of the bridge that you need to go back for and come alongside without forcing them to see your point of view on disputable matters? Um, have you been trying to conform others to your way of thinking, wanting them to become like you, conform to your image? Uh, maybe your family, your neighbors, your husband, your adult children um, on debatable issues. Uh, or are you more intent upon you being conformed to the image of Christ through sacrificing for others? And what's your plan to build others up in the faith this week, to edify them and encourage them as they personally worship God and serve God in their lives as unto the Lord? Okay, let's pray. <laughs> Father, this is such a wonderful word for all of us, I'm sure, for, well, I know it is for me, and I'm sure it is for them as well. All I can really say is just increase our faith, Lord. Increase our faith to become what you've called us to be, 
the living sacrifice. I pray for, um, for everyone here, Father, that they will um, be able to discern what these matters are in their lives, to discern maybe who they need to approach this week or who they, who they need to come alongside for. I pray, Father, that um, within the body of believers in this room that we will, we will show that welcoming love, that proslambano love for each other on these, on these issues, which we know, we know we can be so stubborn sometimes, God. We just ask for your mercy over our stubbornness and that you will change us, conform us to the image of Christ. And we, so we just give you the glory for this word today. We bless you for it. And uh, we thank you for being our ever close God. In Jesus' name, amen.